Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. It's great to see you. It's good to see you, Jana. In this week's chapter, reading chapter four, with the title The Dreyfus Affair, you will give a quick summary of the affair, talk about how Arendt became interested in the case during her exile in France, how it is a dress rehearsal, as she calls it, for 20th century Nazism, and how she distinguishes the mob from the masses. This is the last chapter of part one, uh, the book on anti-Semitism. And uh, Roger, since we haven't spoken since the attack on Israel by Hamas on October 7th, I just wanted to ask you, this is a chapter on anti-Semitism about the political situation right now. And um, since you're on a college campus, to talk a little bit about the role of colleges and universities and what you think our role as professors should be here in the United States and what we at the Hannah Center can do and, and also will do. I know it's a big question. Yeah, you're uh, you're you're putting me on the spot after the kind <laughs> of worms there, Yana. Um, I'm sorry. You know, I, one thing I can say, and I can tell this to people, is you know, as as the head of the Hannah Arendt Center, I've been running programs for 20 years, and um, I've been able to run programs on almost every issue successfully. Race, even rape and date rape. Um, we've oh. done on nationalism. We've done on on you know. We brought in. Um, you know, populists and, you know, sometimes it gets heated, but we've always had meaningful discussions. Every single time I've tried to have a serious conversation between people who don't see eye to eye on the issue of Israel, Palestine, um, it has failed. Uh, either people have refused to speak with each other, walked off the stage, you know, or just started yelling and screaming. It seems to be more than any other issue I'm aware of, the third rail of politics in the United States. Um, you know, why that is, is a fascinating question. I, I have had different theories over the years, but I don't know if I have an answer. I will say this. Um, one thing that our job is as professors and people who work at universities and colleges where we bring young people for the most part together to to learn about the world is our our job is to 
is to teach them complexity, nuance, teach them how to listen and respect, listen to and respect opinions and people they don't like, even they find really offensive at times, and respond to them and learn to argue with them. And um, it seems to me that while we're not so good at this in general, we're, we're okay at it. But the one issue, the one place that we seem to be completely failing to do this on is the Israeli-Palestine um, situation. And even people don't even know what to call it. Is it Israel-Palestine? Is it just Israel? Is it Palestine? Um, is it Israel-Gaza? Uh, you know, is it, I mean, how do you even discuss it? And, um, you know, I will say that uh, since there was a surprise terrorist attack, I don't think that's a controversial statement, by uh, Hamas, a militant group who also, militant terrorist group who's also a governing group in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, and since the really brutal terrorizing and murder of almost 1,400 Israelis and the capturing of 200 hostages from Israel and other countries. And then the Israeli response, which has been, you know, extreme as one might expect, but still extreme and has killed thousands of Gazans. Some, some maybe were Hamas, but many were civilians. You know, there has been a, a, a kind of war to simplify the narrative for each side and claim we are the victims, they are the aggressors. I, I think, you know, and, and and you see it on social media, you see it on campus, um, and it's all over the place. You have to you have to understand that these are nuanced, uh, difficult historical situations, political situations, and that simplifications generally on either side are not going to tell the story. I mean, I think you have to be able to speak a certain amount of truth and condemn certain things that are clearly wrong, right? Um, it is clearly wrong uh, to um, butcher uh, young teenagers at a music festival. Uh, it is, and, and, and clearly wrong to butcher grandparents and video butchering people and send them to their parents. I mean, this is, this is sick stuff. And clearly Hamas is a is a is a terrorist and even a genocidal organization. On the other side, you know, there are things we you have to say. Uh, I am a Jew and you know I have certain sympathies, but you have to say, um, you know, Israel has um been incredibly uh repressive. Uh they have, you know, worked through the security apparatus and a security state. To, to really make um, uh, Palestinians uh, into um, refugees and second-class citizens. Now, you could also say, well, that was also a choice. People just, and, and Arab countries have not taken Palestinians in. Who, no, it's not just Israel's fault. Why should Israel take them in? You know, we can have all sorts of arguments. Uh, what Israel is doing to Gaza is, is on the one hand, you know, self-defense. And on the other hand, it is, it is at times 
uh, a proportional level of self-defense that seems uh, excessive. That said, let's be honest, Israel was just attacked and had an, inc- I mean, what, what happened to Israel and their population? I mean, almost all of my friends and family who are in Israel are burying people, have been burying people, have been mourning people, have people who are hostages in Gaza. It's an extraordinarily awful situation. And, you know, to simply um, come out and, um, and, and say that uh, one side is to blame or the other is, I think, impossible. I will say that on college campuses, at least on elite college campuses and on places like Bard, the the reaction among students has been, many students, quite disheartening uh, in the sense that there are, again, it's a small subset of students, we shouldn't overemphasize it, but uh, who are who are issuing statements and protesting on campus and saying that they celebrate what Hamas did, they celebrate the dismembering, the killing, the torturing, the kidnapping of young people, very much like themselves, who were at a music festival or were at a kibbutz, and 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 to see college students celebrate that on the idea of by any means necessary, and that Israel is a colonial settler state, an apartheid state, and therefore anything that happens to Israeli Jews is justified. It's been shocking to me to see that. It's been shocking and disheartening and honestly evoked feelings of betrayal to see many of my colleagues and friends justify such abysmal rhetoric. And while many of these students, some of them are Jews, we have to remember that. And and many of the faculty, I don't think, are people who dislike Jews. But I am put in a position of saying that when you justify the kind of really brutal and inhuman torture that the Hamas uh, attack uh, um, uh, offered and showed, and then you support those students who justify it, there's only one explanation that I have for it, which is uh, that in some sense, um, Jewish lives are not as important to you as other lives. I don't understand any other accounting for it. Um, and so it is, uh, it is plain and simple anti-Semitism. And, and right now, um, we are seeing college campuses, um, awash with anti-Semitism. Now, let me say there are many on the right who justify the bombing and killing of civilians in Gaza uh, and say, well, they deserve it. And, um, you know, there's also, I would have to say that while there are arguments on both sides, I would say that that's Islamophobia and and that that is a kind of uh, dehumanizing of, of Palestinian lives. Um, so you see it on, on both sides. But um, you don't see that on college campuses. At least I haven't seen it on my college campuses. It's been on on my college campus. It's been largely one sided. Um, it's it, it's largely been um, uh, an, a kind of orgy of anti semitism um, that I've I've seen emerge. And um, as a Jew who teaches on a college campus, it's been 
it's been uh, disillusioning and terrifying to say the least. So um, I think it's been good that the last four weeks we've been reading and teaching about anti-Semitism in this uh, podcast uh, on Hannah Arendt's inquiry into anti-Semitism. And um, I'm, I'm, it's been, it's been quite um, salutary for me to, to think with Hannah Arendt about the depth and uh, meaningful, meaningful power of anti-Semitism as uh, a political tool for for anti-Semitic parties and anti-Semitic movements. And um, I have to say, it's helped me understand what's going on on campuses and um, made me quite depressed. Thank you, Roger. That um, was not an easy question to answer. And you did it in just a couple minutes. It's a topic that we can spend hours on and we will. We have a couple upcoming events and we'll see. We'll keep the conversation going. And speaking of, we have members. You can become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center. Our next question is by a member who has um, asked me to forward this to you, Roger. So uh, this is going back to our text, chapter four. And Hal is asking, Many historians have known that the Dreyfus affair divided families and people privately. To what extent can this type of divide be dealt with in our own families and social circles today, given Arendt's other comments in other books like The Human Condition, for example, about the public and private realms? Yeah, so thank you. And, you know, um, let's just remind ourselves that um, Albert Dreyfus was a, was a, a, a Jewish um Frenchman who uh was in the on the the first Jew ever actually to be on the general staff of the French armed forces and uh was um uh accused tried and convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment on Devil's Island um for treason which was a false accusation and to his credit uh a French army uh inspector named Picard became convinced of, of Dreyfus's innocence and uh, at great cost to him personally, not only his career, but his life and health, pursued the case. And eventually, after far five years on Devil's Island, his sentence was commuted to 10 years imprisonment. And in that struggle, uh, one of the main figures was uh, Clemenceau, who later became a prime minister of, of France, but also Emile Zola um, and Bernard Lazare and others who became known as the Dreyfusards, uh, who were the supporters of Dreyfus and arguing for his acquittal or release or pardon. As, as Hal's question suggests, uh, there was um, a lot of disagreement in society. Uh, and and it split some households as to whether he should be uh, acquitted or not or pardoned or not. I don't know the whole private history of, of the Dreyfus affair, but I, I accept that that is likely to happen. So the question, I think, is more, you know, how do we react to this today, right? Whether you're going home for Thanksgiving dinner and you have to talk to your, your, your Biden-loving, you know, kids or your Trump-loving grandparents or maybe the stereotypes are reversed. Um, you know, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, 
uh, or or maybe it's the Cornell West loving kids and the. <laughs> um, uh, how do you uh, you know talk across the dinner table and 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 have these kind of conversations? And it just so happens that last week the Hunter Rent Center had its um, annual conference on friendship and politics, and uh, you know there was a, a lot of talk, and I, I spoke about. How for Hannah Arendt, friendship is not about truth. It's about humanity. Um, and that humanity is for her based in respect. The point is that you'll, you, you don't, what, 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 what friendship brings to the world is a kind of depth of feeling, a depth of relation, not love, but a, a, a feeling that you can you have a relationship with someone over years. It doesn't, it, it takes years to build a friendship according to Hannah Arendt. And over that time, you be, learn to respect and trust each other. And you can talk about things you disagree with. And that's important because A, um, it allows you to be who you are and you have to allow your friend to be who they are. And you learn to build a friendship that can create a common world that encompasses not only what you agree, what you are, what unites you and what you agree on, but also your differences. And that's the beginning of community. That's the beginning of plurality. That's the beginning of living in a world with people who are different from you, which for Hannah Arendt is the root of politics. And so, uh, you know, the first thing I would say is when you have a family member or a friend and you've known them for a while, go back to what you respect about them and care for about them. If it's baseball, talk to them about baseball, right? If it's um, chess, play chess with them. If it's, uh, you know, carving the turkey, carve the turkey with them. The point is there's lots of ways to build trust and commonality and respect outside of politics. Then, um, you know, every once in a while, try and have a political conversation. See if you can understand their position. Ask them to make an effort to understand yours. And when it gets too heated, go back to baseball. That's what I would say. Thank you, Roger. I think this is a, a nice... Um, Nice way to end this conversation for now. I must say it was ex extremely inspiring and heartwarming to have conversations at the Hannah Arendt Center for two days about friendship, especially in these dark times. So it was a fantastic conference and we're putting it up on our website in case you missed it, you can still watch the live stream. Thank you, Roger, and I'll see you next week. Thank you, Jana. Appreciate it. Welcome. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College, and I'm thrilled to be with you today for our virtual reading group. We are, as you know, uh, in the midst of reading Hannah Arendt's work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, the first four chapters of which are all part of book one of uh, The Origins, and that book is called Anti-Semitism. We've read 
the first three chapters in anti-Semitism. Today, we're doing the fourth, the Dreyfus Affair. Uh, I should note that we did not meet last week because it was the 15th annual Hannah Arendt Center Conference on, on Friendship and Politics, which was a great event and a great success and really exciting. And for those of you who were there or watched online, I hope you enjoyed it. But as a result, we haven't met for two weeks, and I should just note that we haven't thus spoken to each other since um, the the attack uh, on Israel uh, on October sixth and seventh, and um, and and obviously the Israeli response as well. You know, as we have been talking about anti-Semitism, you know, we've been talking about uh, RN's reading of it in the 19th and 20th centuries, but also, of course, it has been present as a as a reality for us today. And um, as you see, uh, the incredible rise of anti-Semitic attacks around the world and the incredible uh, uh, virulent uh, justification of, of violence, you can't, I think, separate um, these ideas. And I just want to mention that and put it out there. We'll have to um, think about that as we as we discuss this text. And um, especially given what's going on in the world, I do ask people uh, in the chat and speaking to be um, respectful and uh, open. That doesn't mean you can't disagree, but it does mean uh, that it is important that uh, we respect each other and figure out ways to converse with each other that uh, allow us to argue, agree, disagree, and yet still maintain respect for each other. So since we're in the last chapter of this book on anti-Semitism, just a quick recap of of where we've been and 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 what we've accomplished. One of the core, uh, ideas in Arendt's thinking about anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism is not the same thing as hatred of Jews, right? This is one of the most radical and important uh, insights that she has, right? So if, if someone says you're an anti-Semite or the X is an anti-Semite and they say, well, I've, you know, I like Jews or I have nothing against Jews, from her point of view, that actually is not so relevant. Anti-Semitism is her for her is not anti-Jewish. It's a secular ideology, a secular ideology that emerges in the 19th century, unknown, she says, before the 1870s, so late 19th century. And it's uh, as an ideology, what what defines it is that it attempts to argue that Jews are the source of the problems in the world. That it is because of the Jews that um, whatever ill one is um, worried about uh, is inflicting itself upon us. This has very little to do with Jews, right? And she says most people who are anti-Semites rarely ever encounter a Jew or know a Jew, um, or they or, or it, that's not a requirement at all. It's 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 simply that Jews become Jews become a, a stand-in 
for political arguments or become an argument for political arguments or a proof of political arguments. Not a scapegoat, right? Because she says it can't just be random. There's a reason. And she has argued that the political rise of political anti-Semitism, which is the most dangerous type, chooses the Jew for a particular reason. Uh, which is that um, as each class in society comes in conflict with the state, they become anti-Semitic because the Jews have been associated with the state. And in um, uh, chapter two on the rise of of anti-Semitism in the nation state, um, she walks us through both how the Jews get associated with the nation state as these exceptional or privileged Jews, who then bankroll the state or are the court Jews and, and how then the rise of anti-Semitic parties, you know, whether it's left anti-Semitism or aristocratic anti-Semitism or right-wing anti-Semitism, all of them emerge insofar as they have a political claim against the state and they see the Jews in their association with the state as uh, an appropriate and easy target to uh, magnify their, their political claims. This political anti-Semitism, she says, is different from social anti-Semitism, um, discrimination and prejudice. And while she says discrimination and prejudice and social anti-Semitism are in the end not as dangerous as political anti-Semitism, it is nevertheless the case, she says on page 87, that political anti-Semitism depends upon the idea of the Jew in general that is a product of social discrimination and thus social anti-Semitism. So even though what's really dangerous is political anti-Semitism, it doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about social anti-Semitism because it makes political anti-Semitism possible. This brings us um, to the last chapter uh, of her book on anti-Semitism, which is on the Dreyfus Affair, chapter four. And the Dreyfus Affair... uh, you know, is as I'm, I don't know how many of you know it, but she starts with um, the facts of the case, and and it's worth at least uh, rehearsing some of the facts as as she presents it. So Alfred Dreyfus, uh, who was a Jewish officer, uh, and by the way, the first Jewish officer of the French general staff in the military, um, was accused and convicted in 1894 of espionage for Germany. And he was sentenced to lifelong deportation to Devil's Island. In 1895, so the next year, um, a Colonel Picard, who is one of the heroes of the story, along with Clemenceau, was made head of the uh, information division of the general staff of the military in France. And in the next year, 1896, he became convinced of Dreyfus's innocence. This is two years after his trial and conviction and sentence. He begins to argue for that innocence, at which point he is uh, removed from his post and posted to a dangerous position in Tunisia. This is when the the fight to overturn the conviction begins. Bernard Lazar, a a well-known Jewish uh, writer, uh, publishes the first pamphlet uh, in favor of Dreyfus, arguing that he's easy, he's easy, he's, he's innocent. Clemenceau, uh, who will later become the prime minister uh, of France, um, begins to fight for a re-examination of the case in 1897. Uh, In 1898, the famous 
um, pamphlet, Jacques, by uh, Zola. I mean, Zola is published. And that is when a man named Major uh, Walzen Esterhazy admits to a British journalist that it was actually him who provided the materials to the Germans and that another person, Colonel Henry, uh, is the one who made the forgery and Colonel Henry confesses. Uh, this is four years after, I mean, this is uh, four years after the original trial. Uh, in 1899, a court of appeal uh, annulled the sentence of Dreyfus, but then resentenced him to 10 years imprisonment anyway, at which point he was pardoned by the French, the French president, Emile Loubet. Seven years after that, uh, when Clemenceau becomes prime minister, he seeks to actually get Dreyfus acquitted fully, not just pardoned. He fails. It never happens. And Arendt goes through and tells a bit of the story of the continuing anti-Semitism around the Dreyfus case. Uh, in fact, in 1908, uh, Dreyfus is attacked on the street in Paris. And when his assailant is put on trial, the court refuses to convict him and says that it no, it does not believe uh, that he was innocent of, that Dreyfus was innocent of of treason and refuses, therefore, to punish the person who attacked him on the street. That's just some basic background and facts. It's good to have it out there. Arendt obviously knew about the Dreyfus case. I mean, she was born in 1906, so a bit afterwards, but it was uh, a case that was widely known in Europe. But she really begins to research it um, starting in 1933 when she, uh, after she's arrested in Germany, and then flees Germany and goes to Paris, where she arrives in 1933 as a stateless refugee. She primarily then works for uh, Jewish organizations. So she worked for um, a, an organization training Jewish colon colonists for settlement in Palestine. She actually was a secretary um, for Germaine de Rothschild and helped with her philanthropy. It's interesting that that's where Arendt's distaste for Jewish philanthropy uh, was born. She also uh, worked with uh, a, a group called the Youth Aliyah, uh, which was a major Zionist organization that brought children to Palestine. And she did go on a trip, taking as a chaperone children to Palestine in 1935 and returned to Paris, really pretty taken with the Jewish world in Palestine, although she would not have wanted to live there. In, in 1938, she started working again on her book, Rahel Vonhagen, about um, uh, the Jewish, the Jewish German uh, who first assimilated, denied her Judaism, and then on her deathbed recanted and came back to being a Jew. And um, she, she turns and she becomes very much opposed uh, to assimilation. And, you know, it's questionable whether how much of a Zionist she was. She worked for Zionist organizations. She brought people to Palestine. She herself didn't want to go, but she clearly was caught up in um, the Zionist critique of assimilation. It's at this time that she begins researching the Dreyfus affair. You can imagine why um, she's living through the birth of um, national socialism, and she's interested in this question of um, what is the relation between the Dreyfus affair, this outburst of virulent anti-Semitism in France in the late, late 19th century, the, the 1890s, 
and um, Nazi or German anti-Semitism as it emerges in the 1920s and 30s. In 1942, right after she, she comes to the United States in 1940, and in 1942, she's still learning English. Um, she teaches a summer course at Brooklyn College. And the course is on the Dreyfus Affair. And in that course, she makes two major points. First, that um, the role of the intellectual in politics often is to pander to the mob. She's interested in the connection. She says, so, so the mob, right, which is a technical term in her work. And we're going to have, a, as we go through this book, we're going to read a lot about the mob, which she's going to distinguish from the masses. Um, the, and and so it's going to be important for us to look at that distinction. But the mob is a power-hungry group of people who want power, but they're often the, the lower classes. Um, but in her view, the mob can only be effective when they're in alliance with the elite or the intellectuals. And it's the intellectuals who defend and justify what the mob does. And so one aspect of the Dreyfus affair is that you saw the intellectuals and the mob joining forces. And, and, and so she's interested in that aspect of it. She also saw in the Dreyfus affair, what she called in that lecture, a new form of a new form of inhumanity and a particular coldness that she sees as potentially a precursor to fascism and totalitarianism. She argues that the Dreyfus affair was a huge dress rehearsal for a performance that had to be put off for more than three decades, namely Nazism. She calls it in the origins of totalitarianism a foregleam of future anti-Semitism and totalitarianism. And yet, she doesn't think that what happened in the Dreyfus affair is really the precursor to Nazism. And so in chapter two, which we read two, a couple of weeks ago, um, when she describes the different early forms of, of anti-Semitism, she talks pretty um, extensively about French anti-Semitism. And this begins on page 45 in The Origins, in the text we're reading. And in this discussion of French anti-Semitism, she says, Quote, the Dreyfus affair brings into the open all other elements of 19th century anti-Semitism in its mere ideological and political aspects. It is the culmination of the anti-Semitism which grew out of the special conditions of the nation state. So the Dreyfus affair brings into the open 19th century anti-Semitism. You have to note that not 20th century. She says its violent form, she continues, of French anti-Semitism foreshadowed future developments so that the main actors of the affair sometimes seem to be staging a huge dress rehearsal for a performance that had been put off for more than three decades. She says it drew together all the open or subterranean political or social sources which had brought the Jewish question into a predominant position in the 19th century. But, and here's the key. She says French anti-Semitism, quote, stayed within the framework of a typical 19th century ideology. 
Namely, it didn't become international. It didn't become supranational. It was ultimately connected to the nation state, not to the death of the nation state, not to the rise of imperialism and thus totalitarianism. And thus she can say, antiquated as it was, French anti-Semitism had no influence on Nazi anti-Semitism. It is more significant in itself than as an active historical factor in the final catastrophe. And she goes on and says that the main reasons for what she calls in a typically understated Arendtianism, the wholesome limitations of French anti-Semitism, right, is that it is nationalist, not internationalist, right? That they did not seek to organize a party above parties or to seize the state as a party for no other purpose than the party interest. They weren't simply brutally after power to achieve more power, to achieve more power, to achieve more power in a completely unlimited sense, which is what she thinks totalitarianist, totalitarianism and thus totalitarian anti-Semitism aimed at. So she wants to make this distinction, but even if it is limited in a wholesome way, this early French anti-Semitism, she says, was, quote, the earliest instance of the success of anti-Semitism as a catalytic agent for all other political issues. And so she looks at it as a foregleam, as a model of the different um, ways that anti-Semitism will impact uh, the world in the 20th century. The two ways in which she says it is this foregleam for later anti-Semitisms is one that it is clearly embraces the idea of the Jew, this idea of social anti-Semitism and thus discrimination and um, hatred, not of particular Jews, but of this idea of the Jew. And secondly, um, that it is born of a suspicion of the state of parliament and the republic itself, and thus has a political sense in which the Jews and the hatred of Jews in general uh, are used in a political way uh, to attack the state and parliament and the French Republic. She develops this in the second and third parts of this chapter. The second part is on the Third Republic and French Jewry, which starts on page 95 and is largely about the Panama scandal, uh, which um, I assume some of you don't know what it is. Since I certainly didn't when I first read this book, but it was basically a, a huge scandal uh, by the by um, the, the De Lesseps and his company in which they were trying to build and did build the Panama Canal, but went bankrupt and millions of French middle-class people lost their uh, investments. The the corrupt people involved were the Lesseps Company and Parliament, um, none of whom were Jews, but the middlemen uh, between them who often allowed this to happen, some of them were Jews. But in any case, uh, from RN's point of view, it was this um, Panama scandal, which showed the corruption of Parliament and corruption of the French Republic, gets played up by the anti-Semitic press as a Jewish problem, even though 
Jews were not the main actors. And, uh, and that's, uh, and, and that's the first uh, step here in, in her account. In the third chapter on the army and the clergy, clergy again, uh, you see an attack on the Republic so that the army, which is a caste system, is an entity outside the nation. And the church was also seen as an escape from the chaos of the Republic. Uh, and so uh, here she says, what you see is uh, these two institutions are both set themselves against the parliament, against the Republic, against the political class in a way um, that allows them uh, to uh, attack the Republic through anti-Semitism. The key part of this chapter is, is, is section four, uh, which is called the people in the mob. This is where uh, Arendt really develops some of the ideas which are going to come back in the book, uh, especially in the um, chapter on the alliance between the elite and the mob later in the book, in the totalitarianism section. And when we get to that, you're going to want to come back and, and look at this. But the, the, the point here and the argument she's making is that there is a fundamental common error that people have in thinking about anti-Semitism and racist political movements. And the error is to see the mob as identical with the people instead of as a caricature of the people. This is on 106 to 107. The mob is not the people. The mob is a group that has simplified certain ideas and is mobilized um, as a caricature of the people for political ends of power. Who mobilizes the mob? It's the elite. You need a demagogue, you need a leader or a group of leaders. And so uh, she, she, she says a number of things about the mob here, which will be important for us in understanding her later in the section on totalitarianism, where she comes back to this concept and wants to distinguish the mob from the masses. And by the way, I should say, I think, you know, she wrote this book over many years. She uses the mob and the masses sometimes in opposition to each other. And sometimes she collapses them. And so here she's defining the mob in a way that's actually not distinguished from how she will define the masses also. So just keep that in mind. But the mob, she says, is first of all, the residue of all classes, which is how she will describe the, the masses later in the book. But what she means by that is the mob is not the working class or the bourgeoisie or the elite. It's the people who sort of fall out of all of them. It's the people who don't belong in any of them. And, and the reason is the mob doesn't really have its own economic or class interest. What it wants is destruction and power. And it's the people who sort of fall out of the politics of interest and get mobilized in this nihilistic um pursuit of power. They clamor then for a strong man, a great leader, and thus they prefer a plebiscite as a way of electing a leader. The mob hates society from which it is uh, which is it excluded. 
And they hate parliament where it is not represented because the parliaments are the elitists. And the mob thus, she here distinguishes from the people, the people who fight for true representation, namely representation by the elite, uh, who want to be spoken for, um, you know, in their best sense. She says on page 107 that the high society and politicians of the Third Republic had produced the French mob in a series of scandals and public frauds. So insofar as the military, the clergy and high society and the pub and the politicians created the Panama scandal, attacked the parliament, attacked the Republic. They made people uh, see the Republic as corrupt and the, the mob then emerged as a group claiming and clamoring for power. But she says they could only do this with the help of the intellectuals. That She says the intellectuals in society protect the mob verbally. It's the mob who storms the shops and attacks the Jews in the street. It's the mob that hates society. But it's the intellectuals who justify it and explain why the Jews um, deserve to be tortured. And uh, they tear off and they say, look, you know, we, we talk about equal rights, but we don't really believe it. It's hypocritical. Let's be honest. Let's be authentic. And let's pursue uh, our true power. She says on page 108, uh, talking about the mob and the Jews, she says, excluded as it is from society and political representation, the mob turns of necessity to extra parliamentary action, Right. To, so the mob is excluded. They're the refuse of society. They're the people who don't usually get to elect people into parliament. And so they turn to extra parliamentary action. Moreover, this mob, she says, is inclined to seek the real forces of political life in those movements and influences which are hidden from view and work behind the scenes. They, they, they believe that there's you know, Jews behind the scenes you know, running the show. They think oh, we don't have access to power. It must be because some secret people do. She says that there can be no doubt that during the 19th century, Jewry fell into this category, as did Freemasonry and the Jesuits, these people who were seen to be behind the scenes, conspiracies. It is, of course, utterly untrue that any of these groups really constituted a secret society bent on dominating the world by means of a giant conspiracy. Nevertheless, it is true that their influence however overt it may have been, was exerted beyond the formal realm of politics, operating on a large scale in lobbies, lodges, and confessional. So the argument is that they didn't have a giant conspiracy, but they, they weren't part of the politics, the mainstream politics. They weren't in parliament. And so to the extent they had power, it was as lobbies, as bankers, as lodges, as confessionals. And so she says the mob emerged here along with nationalist leaders. A lot of these nationalist leaders were in the army um, and in the journalist press corps. She talks about the nihilism of these nationalists who offered a philosophy of pessimism. This is on 112. And they had a delight in the doom that was the first sight sign of the imminent collapse of the European intelligentsia. Now, again, we'll come back to this much later in the book, in the section on totalitarianism. But Arendt thinks that the intellectual elite came to 
be nihilists, came to believe that the world was so corrupt and politics was so corrupt and capitalism was so corrupt and the morals of society, bourgeois morals, were so corrupt that they had to be flushed down the toilet. And the only way to flush all of the institutional structures of society down the toilet was by destroying the society. And so she says the intellectuals, out of a sort of moral repugnance at bourgeois capitalist society, come to support the mob as their shock troops to tear society down. And what she says is in France, it worked for 10 or 12 years during this Dreyfus affair, but it didn't have greater ambitions. All they wanted to do was have the army and the clergy run things. They didn't actually seek to um, spread this idea around Europe or around the world. It wasn't totalitarian. It was still preserving a kind of aristocratic, uh, elitist nationalism that the elites sought to hold on to. What protected France in the end from these uh, elite and from the elite and mob were a few people. Uh, one was um, Picard, the officer who, she says, was a was an aristocrat but not ambitious and had not yet embraced the idea of power and ends justify the means. Who she says was utterly divorced from social clannishness on page one hundred nine who simply stood up and tried to do what is right for his country. You might think of him as a good civil servant who, like a couple did four or five years ago, four years ago, became whistleblowers and testified against the corruption of the political class. And um, uh, it was Picard's sense of duty and sense of honor in doing what is right uh, that allowed him to once he became convinced of Dreyfus's innocence, pursue the matter even after he gets fired and reassigned to Tunisia. And the other um, hero of the story, it's interesting enough that she doesn't have great respect for Dreyfus. She thinks of Dreyfus as a parvenu. Uh, she thinks of his family as largely um, not willing to fight for him as much as they should have. Um, she doesn't have a whole lot of respect for Dreyfus. She thinks the, the hero of the story is not Dreyfus, it's Clemenceau, um, who eventually becomes the prime minister of France. And when he does, is the one who fights for the acquittal uh, and fails in it, but but fights for it. And what she thinks is so great about Clemenceau is that his fight for Dreyfus um, was not a fight against a particular misconduct of justice. She wasn't fighting for Dreyfus for Dreyfus. He was fighting for Dreyfus based on abstract ideas such as justice, liberty, and civic virtue. He was convinced, and he eventually convinced others, she says, that the infringements of the rights of one man was an infringement of the rights of all. And that was the way that the nationalist anti-Semitism of France was, was defeated, or at least countered, through certain individuals who embraced the idea of equality and justice and actually created a, a, a movement, a mass movement, a mob movement to support them. 
She closes the chapter saying that uh, what the Dreyfus affair shows us and teaches us is that it was the only episode of the 19th century in which we got a glimpse of what she calls the subterranean forces, the deep, dark, hateful, anti-Semitic forces that uh, will come back in the 20th century in a very different form in totalitarianism. That's the first importance of it. The second is that it was the Dreyfus affair more than anything else in Europe that gave birth to the Zionist movement. And she says at the end of this chapter on 120, Zionism is the only political answer the Jews have ever found to anti-Semitism. The only political answer, right? If you're going to be attacked as Jews politically, in the end, she says, what the, the only answer that Jews could ever come up with was to leave and form their own country. And, and so the, the Dreyfus Affair is, is important for these two reasons. One is the foregleam of, of Nazism, and two, it's the birth of a political response to anti-Semitism, namely Zionism. Okay, let me stop there. I look forward to the conversation. Rachel. Hi. Um, I, I really enjoyed this chapter and I've read it a couple of times. And it's, it's again, I feel a little bit lost since so many things are thrown around. But one thing that stuck out to me is how much there's conspiracy theory and intrigue going on in this kind of soap opera of politics, which seems very familiar to, uh, today. And But when I try to think through how it's important to, to like, to, as a moral exhortation to the present, um, it seems to me that this, that as you, I think, as I understood you were describing it, that the Third Republic had become very corrupt and that the real tragedy lie in the fact that there wasn't enough citizens who were arguing and defending the rights of all as equality under the law. And everybody kind of showed themselves to be kind of a scoundrel because they were, you know, arguing it, uh, arguing about things, how to advance their particular cause, but not sticking to the the thing that is uh, most important for a uh, democracy or republic to work and that, that, that you defend the rights even of your opponents. And Clemenceau was a hero and, and uh, Bernard Lazar, I think, too, for sticking fast to this principle of equality under the law, which the nascent nascent state should should protect. And so, um, if if I feel there's um, a, perhaps a slight exhortation for us in our time to think about whether or not. We have our own ideological opponents who are vilified, and we are not defending um, their rights. But we we take um, you know uh, uh, glory, or or where we just want to win, so we don't care if say the Trump supporters or the working class are vilified or characterized as a threat to democracy or characterized by the FBI as potential extremists, that we, we've we lost um, the importance of protecting constitutional rights above all and our fellow citizens, even if they are ideologically opposed to us. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I think you've done a great job. I could go home, Rachel. Um, <laughs> uh you know everything you said. I think uh, is is right. Um, 
you know, there, there are clearly analogs um, to today, uh, um, you know, in the, in the kind of situation she's, she's describing um, the, uh, the corruption of politics in the political sphere, right? Um, the idea that uh, you pursue power at all costs, power begets power. Um, and, and that, uh, uh, you know, lying or, um, changing the rules, uh, is fine as long as it works. The end justifies the means. Um, and we see this in our political and cultural realm. Um, uh, and we see an elite class, uh, that is willing to, um, uh, inflame and justify uh, the power pursuit of the mob because they uh, think that the uh, the powers that be are no better. Um, uh, and they are willing to, you know, tear down uh, the, the country or the institutions, right? I mean, those who want to say, let's tear down the Supreme Court because it's, it's not, you know, doing what we want. And it's really just politics. And so let's pack the court or let's get rid of the court. Or um, uh, on the other side, uh, let's um, tear down the civil service because they're not really, um, you know, having the public interest at heart. They're, you know, elites and and they're stopping democracy and they're stopping us from getting what we want done. And so you see you know, a right-wing attack on government and a left-wing attack on government in both those instances. And uh, elites on both sides um, come to to justify uh, and support the mob saying, look, you know, you might think the mob are just power-hungry people, but, well, the people they're attacking are just power-hungry people because there's no truth, there's no justice. All there is is power, right? Read your Foucault. And, um, if that's the case, uh, why why prefer one to the other? Let's watch the whole thing burn down, and um, and I think uh, uh, that's the attitude of 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 many elites on both the left and the right. I would say today, um, a kind of uh, joyful nihilism, um, or a kind of purely engaged um, power politics. Uh, in which they simply uh, become part of the mob themselves. Um, and so all of that said, you rightly, Rachel, um, uh, say that she holds out as the antidote to that, something that, you know, many people today, uh, many elites today, and, and many mob people in the mob today find quaint, right? A kind of um, uh, uh, abstract belief in um, constitutionalism in laws and procedures and um and and ideals uh that she thinks um saved the french republic from the mob uh you know but it took 12 years and actually never fully saved it because dreyfus was never actually ever acquitted um and and so you see the you know it's it's this is the and this would be the critique that people would make. Well, see, justice and ideals don't work. They never he never got acquitted, and and you can make that case, and then you can say it's all about power. 
Um, but yes, I think you're right to say she holds up this idea of a constitutional republicanism as the antidote to um, uh, nihilism and power. Um, this will become a theme in the book. It's it's also a it's also a huge theme of her book on revolution, which we've read before and we'll read again at some point. Um, uh, and uh, for those interested, the RN Center just announced a conference we're going to have in March on this te- theme of power and authority around the Constitution and the court. And there's a call for papers that just went up last week. So um, if you're interested in this topic, uh, we'd love to see you. But thank you, Rachel. It was a it was a great question. Um, do you have a follow up? I mean, it was a good question. I'll give you a follow up. Or is that good? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh Jerry. Yes. Yeah. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Roger. Um, some of what you said made me wonder why this chapter is in the book at all, why this part of the book is, is, is in this book. Um, you know, isn't she, isn't it important for Hannah that she is showing the world, the shape of the world in the Dreyfus, the character of the world in the Dreyfus, in France, in the time of the Dreyfus Affair, as a precursor to what is going to follow. You're right to say it isn't the same, but what is similar is the condition of alienation, a world alienation, not not uh, in the Marxist sense, but in the sense that she will later develop world alienation. And it it seems to me that this chapter, at least it's always, I've always read it that way, is pinpointing that, in which you have masses who are alienated, within which you have mob, a mob, that is enraged. It is that mob, the enraged mob, that some find we have echoes here today. But there certainly, it was the basis of Nazi Germany that sought one leader needed one leader, which is what they got. And that led to what Aaron calls, I don't think anybody ever said this before, the complete abandonment of politics. She coins the word politisierung. She uses that word in German, the abandonment of, 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 of politics. And I think that's what she saw as a precursor, a precursor of that in um, in in the in the Dreyfus affair, uh, you are right. Very goodness knows absolutely to say that she is she is no fan of Captain Dreyfus himself. By the way, I don't think 
that he was never pardoned. The, 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 the point, I think, not that he wasn't uh, excused, but he was never officially pardoned by the government. I'm not sure what the word was you, you used, but um, you, you said he he wasn't uh, vindicated. I think he wasn't. He was, in a sense, vindicated. He was never pardoned. And that is a huge distinction, I believe. For, for I think. Well, I, just on that last point, Jerry. I, again, you know, I'm not an expert on this period, but I'm just just read the the Arendt, and I also read another piece on it just to brush up on my history a little bit. My understanding was that in 1890, I think it's 1896, um, he was pardoned, but um, but still then only pardoned. So he, he was only pardoned for the sentence, not for the crime. So um, that's the that's the distinction. Well, I, I, I think Aaron means that he was not pardoned by the state by for he was he was vindicated he didn't have to go to any more punishment anything like that but he was not ever officially pardoned for the crime that his state accused him of so i think that's just i'm agreeing with you there roger uh the so, one, one other thing, I just wanted to add one thing, and that is this business about Zionism being the only answer that Jews came up with. That's the question I want to ask you. How do you think Arendt intends that? Do you think that she is then, because she did, in a way, become a Zionist in a very mod modified way, I believe, but do, do, do you think she's that's a, an encomium? For Zionism, I, I I never quite read it that way. I read it I read it the other way that it's the only, not the not in the unique sense, but it, there never was another way that they found. Anyway, that's a that's an interesting question. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way. I do read it as an encomium at that point, and and um, and uh, you know, obviously, um obviously, but about, uh, I mean, she's writing, I mean, this, this obviously comes out in 1950, but she writes these chapters quite earlier. Um, I, I, you know, to what extent Arendt ever was a full on Zionist is, is a hard question to answer. And I think she, she gives differing answers to that at different parts of her life. But, um, you know, at the time she was interested in the Dreyfus affair, she, she had developed an argument which she um which she articulates in chapter um two of origins uh that the jews never had a political response to anti-semitism they were um you know they they sought privileges but they didn't politicize they didn't act and um i think she comes to believe at this point you know she goes to the world zionist congress she she's working for the zionist organizations I think she comes to think that the only political response in which we Jews get together and act collectively to um, assert their collective interests um, is Zionism. Uh, you know, um, clearly she she turns away from that, uh, at least in some sense, in, in about eight or ten years. Um, but uh, I think I think she believes it at the time. But I'm not 
100% sure. For your, you know, the other point you're making about, um, about the complete abandonment of politics and um, the turn to one leader, I think is right. I mean, I tried, uh, what I was hoping to say, and I, and I hope this came through and, and you can tell me if it did, is that on the one hand, she's interested in, and the reason this chapter is in the book is because it is a foregleam of um, what comes next. And uh, it is insofar for two reasons. One is it provides this idea of the Jew, the social discrimination of the Jew, uh, and and two, um, this 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 political attack on on Jews, um, at, based in this kind of complete abandonment. She says, though, you know, in the end, it was limited. I, you know, I, I I do love this phrase she uses: wholesome limitation of French anti anti semitism. Um, is that it's nationalist and not internationalist, right? Um, you know, and, and, and that's something to think about today, right? You know, people are really interested in these, in these illiberal democratic movements that are arising around the world, whether it's in Russia or Hungary or, or China or in the U S or in France or in Germany. And one of the questions that I think you have to ask is, are these closer to what we would call French racist or French nationalist movements, which have wholesome limitations, or are they more internationalist uh, and um, thus dangerous in a totalitarian sense? And um, that's one of the reasons I emphasize that that distinction, because I think that's an important uh, question for anyone looking at uh, the current zeitgeist to, to ask themselves. Thank you, Jerry. Please do enjoy reading Hannah Arendt, and I'll see you next week to talk about um, the first chapter of imperialism. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz, and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.